Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrah. This is Radio Lab. So last week we did a big episode about the 1918 flu, thinking about this invisible enemy. This week we've got two stories about a couple of invisible allies. Okay, well... um... And uh, we're going to kick things off with producer Simon Adler. So we're going to start at a homeless shelter in Boston. Hi, this is Jim. Called the Pine Street Inn. Hey, Jim, Simon here from Radiolab. Oh, Simon, how are you? Thank you for calling, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Oh, yeah. How are you? (laughs) Does now still work for you? Um, Yeah, no, no, it works. And a very busy doctor there, Dr. Jim O'Connell internal medicine doc at MGH and the president of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. And he says back this past winter, as this wave of COVID-19 was making its way towards North America, he and everybody in this community of healthcare providers who work with the homeless were were freaked. You know, really good measures for controlling this is to, you know, physically distance and to quarantine, wash your hands frequently, and to shelter at home. And when you crawl into our perspective of being a homeless person or homeless provider, those things are rendered just absurd. And we're looking at 500 people sitting in what we were thinking of as a powder cake. And so to try to head this thing off, they did all sorts of preparations. They built tents in various places. They scrambled to find extra beds around the city. How many beds do we need? We were guessing, entirely guessing. And every evening, as the homeless folks would return to the shelter for the night, they'd get their temperatures taken, and have a brief interview with a shelter worker. Like, just have you experienced any of these symptoms, yada, yada, yada? Exactly. Jim and his team just did what they could and braced for that powder keg to ignite. Yes. However, by mid-March, with thousands of cases appearing all over the United States... We were not seeing anybody turn positive. No one seems to be getting sick. Huh. Now, this was surprising, but Jim says... We've seen this before. We've seen infectious diseases hit the homeless population last. And so we sort of laughingly said none of our folks have traveled to China or Europe. So, you know, maybe this thing's just taking its time, but... Another dramatic and deadly turn in the coronavirus... The end of March draws near. The most reported coronavirus death... Major cities across the U.S. are in trouble. 80,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. The shelter still nothing. We didn't have anybody positive. It's 
totally baffling. And it wasn't just them. They call up the Los Angeles homeless shelters. Uh, nobody there. San Francisco had not yet seen anyone at the end of March. Basically, nobody in Atlanta. Even in Seattle, they hadn't seen any among the homeless population. So already they're sort of like, what the hell is going on? We thought we were going to be hit hardest. We aren't being hit. And they're just sort of left in this state of bewilderment until April 2nd, when they get enough tests from the state to do universal testing. We screened and tested everybody. They put 408 people through the test. They shoved this, the thing up their nose. These are sort of the gold standard in tests at the time. They wait a few days, and the results... There were 147 positive tests that night out of the 408. That's about 40%. Whoa. Okay. And of those... No symptoms whatsoever. Not a single person was symptomatic. Really? It blew our mind. They did more tests at other shelters throughout the city. 30 to 40 percent. They're all asymptomatic. Exact same results. That is really, really strange. Again, they looked to other shelters across the country. Uh, Jim O'Connell calls up his friends doing work in other cities. And many of them are seeing this same phenomenon as well. Weird. Why? Well, oddly, the answer might just be found by looking up. But first, backwards, a century prior. It's September 1918. The Spanish flu is raging through Boston, killing a massive 40% of those who were hospitalized. And in particular, it's hitting sailors, merchant marines, the hardest. In fact, there were so many of them coming off the boats that they had to erect these temporary tent hospitals, uh, including one they named Camp Brooks. Camp Brooks, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Richard Hobday, researcher and author, and he says Camp Brooks was special. I mean, they, what they did was they recognized that, that what they were doing wasn't working. In effect, it was they were dying. So they decided, right, we'll change change our direction and, and, and do something else. So instead of leaving the sailors in, in these dank tents... At Camp Brooks, whenever they were able to do it, the patients were taken outside in their beds and put outside. Just roll out their beds? Just push the beds out into the courtyard or something? Exactly. At the time, there was indication that putting people outdoors helped with tuberculosis, and so they thought, why not give it a shot here too? And then at the end of the day, when the sun was gone, they put them back in. And um, by the end of the first night, almost every patient, without exception, had a lower temperature at night than during the morning and felt decidedly more comfortable. From the first day, the results were startling. And pretty damn quickly, they'd managed to cut the death rate by two thirds. Whoa. Really? Yeah. Just by just by pushing them out into the out into the air? Yeah. That, geez, that's that's a stark difference. That, do you trust those numbers? Uh, they're from the uh, the Surgeon General of the Massachusetts State Guard, uh, the, the the medical officer responsible for the sailors' care. Interesting. And he's saying we don't like we don't know why this is working, but it's working. And so, uh, bringing this back to the present, tying this all together, uh, as researchers were, were, were scratching their heads over this homeless shelter mystery and looking back to these sailors, they started to think, okay, maybe this has something to do with, with sunlight. Sunlight. Yes. 
Thank you very much. You remember at that press conference back in April when President Trump made those daffy, unfounded statements about UV lights? Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And injecting disinfectant. Injection inside. For which he was berated to no end. It sounds interesting to me. Well, turns out others thought that the sun and sunlight were interesting things to look at as well. To be clear, by all indications, they were interested in sunlight, not for any of the reasons that President Trump was, but because sunlight and the sun is is how we get the majority of our of our vitamin D. Whoa, so they wow, so they're in they're in the sun more. That's the thought. They're in the yes, homeless individuals and the sailors, the idea goes, are less likely to be vitamin D deficient. I've heard people talk about sunlight and vitamin D, but I don't even really know what vitamin D is. So vitamin D actually isn't a vitamin in the traditional sense, because generally vitamins are things that exist outside of the body that we need to ingest to get. That's not actually the case with vitamin D. Our bodies can make the stuff in-house. Uh, and the way we do so is is sort of cosmically astonishing, Basically, we've got this proto-cholesterol molecule in our skin, uh, and that cholesterol is just sort of sitting there doing its thing. But when it gets hit with sunlight, so imagine the tip of your nose as, as you step out into the sun. In that moment, a little portion of that proto-cholesterol molecule on your nose, what's known as a carbon bond, gets broken. Now, what exactly a carbon bond is, uh, I, I couldn't tell you it's something molecular. But anyways, with that carbon bond broken, that cholesterol molecule becomes untethered from your nose and can now be absorbed into your bloodstream. Goes through the bloodstream, down, down, down from your nose, into the liver, where it picks up hydrogen and oxygen molecules, then back into the bloodstream. Another stop, this time in the kidneys, some more molecular magic. And then finally, it pops out the other side as what we now know as vitamin D. And thinking about this, what's sort of crazy is like, it's as close as we get to being plants, or it's like the closest connection we have to plants. Uh, It's our own little form of photosynthesis that's happening uh, every minute we're out in the sun. Yeah. And crazier still, turns out this little photosynthesized vitamin is correlating with COVID in a series of strange ways. Hi, this is Frank. Hey, uh, Frank, Simon here from Radiolab. How's it going? One of which was noticed by this guy, Dr. Frank Lau. Associate professor of plastic surgery at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans. As he was looking at COVID patients in the ICU. The, the core question is, okay, what seems to be driving the more severe cases? And so some things popped out like, you know, nutrition, obesity, diabetes rates, and so forth. Um, but the one factor that really stood out as being explanatory for this vitamin D insufficiency. Folks with mild symptoms had plenty of it, Well, folks in the hospital didn't have much. The ones who were really, really sick, I mean, some of them had undetectable levels of vitamin D. And, well, his paper uh, is, is pre-published. It, it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet because the science is moving very fast. Uh, this has been seen in other hospitals throughout the United States as well. So that's the sort of local correlation. And then if we zoom out globally, uh, a team from Northwestern recently compared the severity of cases, the the mortality rate between different countries. And what they found was that 
the best predictor of how poorly a country would fare, how high their mortality rate would be, was its rate of vitamin D deficiency. Basically, the more vitamin D deficient a country was, the more bad outcomes they were expected to have. And so why would this be? I mean, why, how would vitamin D help us against coronavirus? So vitamin D helps regulate your immune system, both by turning parts of it up and by turning other parts of it down. Now, when it comes to turning things up, your macrophages, the sort of warrior cells of your immune system that go out and kill the bad viruses, germs, etc., vitamin D soups them up. It, it makes them better fighters. Okay. And while this is definitely important, it's actually vitamin D's ability to slow things down that's looking more and more vital. As the body fights COVID-19, overproduction of molecules called cytokines can trigger a cytokine storm. So these cytokine storms, which you may have heard about in the news, are essentially your immune system going haywire. Where the immune system attacks the body's own vital organs. Like uh, the lung. One way it was explained to me is that it's like your immune system switching from being a sniper, precisely targeting individual foes, into a machine gunner just brazenly firing all around, leading to way more damage than protection. And here's the thing. Vitamin D reduces the production of these cytokines. Oh, interesting. Possibly preventing that sniper from becoming a machine gunner in the first place and reducing your likelihood of having one of these cytokine storms. Huh. Has this... Where are we in terms of confidence about that this is in fact a thing. Right. Uh, we're definitely in the early days here. And as I said, this is still all just correlation. But you are beginning to see some people say that we know enough to act, that we should start recommending vitamin D supplements, which is controversial in part because those recommendations are often involving race. The NHS is to launch an investigation into why people from ethnic minority backgrounds are more likely to be affected by COVID-19. So leaving the states here for a minute, in the UK, much like in the US, there are racial disparities in, in the number of COVID deaths, specifically when it comes to doctors and medical workers. The first 10 doctors to die from the disease were from ethnic minorities. 65% of all NHS workers who have died from COVID-19 are from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. Yes, yes. We started noticing this uh, disparity uh, way back in April. This is Dr. Parag Singhal. He is a British endocrinologist and also the National Secretary of the British Association of Physicians of Indian Origin. Our main aim is to offer Indian origin doctors protection from racism, discrimination, which happens. They've got about 8,000 members, and he says back in April, he started hearing from them. Uh, because uh, at that time, there were, I think, 13 or 14 deaths of healthcare workers, and all of them were uh, from what you call BAME, which is uh, Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic Population. B-A-M-E, or, or Doctors of Color, I think, as we would call them in the United States? Yes, yes, that's right. And that uh, got us worried. So, so a lot of theories were proposed. More prevalence of diabetes in AME population, social economic deprivation. And then also this vitamin D idea. I mean, we know for a fact that if we are black, it's very difficult to absorb sunlight and make vitamin D. 
that's bottom line. And the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in black population is enormous. And so knowledge of that fact, plus then these early correlational studies that were coming out. That started us to understand that maybe vitamin D has something to do with it. Huh. So folks with dark, just so I can pull that apart for a second, folks with darker skin have less vitamin D? Folks with darker skin have a harder time synthesizing vitamin D. And folks with darker skin are far more likely to be vitamin D deficient. So in the U.S. here, um, 82% of African Americans are vitamin D deficient, which is, which is about double that of the general population. And, well, in the U.K., those rates aren't identical. Uh, they're, they're comparably similar. So the thought is that because vitamin D deficiency correlates well with COVID mortality, and because communities of color have greater levels of vitamin D deficiency, maybe those two are linked in some way. Yes, that is the thought. So we started highlighting this. They sent out a message encouraging all of their 8,000 members and their families to take a vitamin D supplement. We started a public awareness campaign through TV and so on and so forth. But then, just a couple weeks later... You know, I was part of a focus group discussing COVID and how disproportionate impact it has had. This focus group Dr. Singhal was part of was made up primarily uh, of doctors and politicians of color. And during a meeting, Dr. Singhal brought up this idea of vitamin D, even offered to pay for vitamin D supplements for communities of color in that region. And the answer from that same politician who was chairing the group was, these are the exact words, that vitamin D is a distraction. It's all about racism. To which Dr. Singhal's like, Nobody's saying that that is not at play. Of course, access to care, who gets defined as an essential worker, are are massive factors here. And I'm not denying that there is a terrible tradition of blaming minorities' biology for the shortcomings of society. There is what you call systemic racism. We know there are health inequalities. There is deprivation. We know that. And I belong to uh, Indian community. I'm from Indian background. And I'm well aware of those systemic issues. No doubt about that. But nonetheless, that doesn't seem to be the only thing going on here. Particularly when you consider this all started because we were talking about doctors dying. Doctors come from reasonably affluent backgrounds. They are not living in poverty. And interestingly, if you look at the data from first week of May onwards. So several weeks after their members started taking vitamin D. Uh, there has been, uh, according to my understanding, there has not been any healthcare worker death after that due to COVID. Now, I'm not saying vitamin D was the only factor. Right, but you think that some of that could be due to vitamin D? Yes, yes, we believe, we very much believe so, yeah. And so he's like, come on, there's a possibility we can save lives here. Like, we, we can't solve systemic racism overnight. We can solve vitamin D deficiency uh, in a week. I mean, as medics, our first uh, principle and first philosophy has to be do no harm. And what we have done is, by not pursuing the path of vitamin D, we have caused harm. So back to your question of how confident we should be in all this. Well, we know that vitamin D is good for us. If you ask the top brass here in the United States, the CDC, how effective it is against the coronavirus. We do have to 
we have to wait a little bit to be able to get enough data to answer these types of questions. They'll tell you, as Dr. Emily Masaitis of the CDC told me, it's just still too early to say. And while there is undeniably something remarkable happening here in, in these homeless shelters, again... It's hard to draw a conclusion on what this means. We don't know if it means that people who are homeless have higher proportions of asymptomatic infection than anybody else. To determine that, we would need a comparison group. Like universal testing of a comparable population. You know, another group of people living in a congregate setting of a similar age. But since we're still not really doing universal testing anywhere, other than in prisons and nursing homes, we're we're really only testing people showing symptoms, no such comparison group exists. So it's possible that that most of us that are infected are carrying it around in an asymptomatic manner. And just to complicate this one final level further, uh, Dr. Masaitis points out that as far as vitamin D levels in homeless people go... People who are experiencing homelessness are pretty undercounted and understudied. So there's not a ton of information, but the information we do have about nutrients and about vitamin D shows that they're actually more likely to be deficient. Oh, really? Yeah. Yet another thing we don't have enough data on. Well, into, well, okay, so what? where do you go from here? Or at this point, what's the advice that you give? Because clearly you have a more thorough, robust study coming down the pike here. But in the meantime, just everybody should be popping their vitamin D supplements and making sure they're not uh, deficient? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> Once more... Dr. Frank Lau. I wouldn't even say the supplements necessarily. You know, if you get 10 to 15 minutes of sunlight between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., that's when peak UVB rays are, are, in the, are present in the sunlight. Uh, you, get, you can get your daily dose of vitamin D. Um, so the, also, the are you outside doing, right now? Are you outside getting your am, vitamin yeah. D boost? I, I am, yeah. <laughs> you can hear the crows on yeah, yeah, away yeah. in the background. <laughs> So right now, so so right now we're like getting, we're having like a chemical thing happen to us because of the sun. Isn't it sort of crazy to think? It is Before I let you go, uh, here, Jed. As we were finishing this thing up, producer Annie McCune and I went on a sort of remote bike ride together. Uh, her in Brooklyn, me here in Wisconsin. Really just to take a moment and take in the majesty that is the sun. The, the thought I've sort of been having, uh, I do think it's sort of a lovely thought that even well, the natural world has decided that it wants to get us with this tiny little virus, this, this microscopic orb, that billions of miles away, there's a giant orb, huge and golden, Yeah. that is, that is in its small way trying to send us a bit of protection. It's trying to help us. That's yeah. nice. I like yeah. that. Okay. Uh, okay. A car almost just hit a cab. Uh, yes. I'm focusing again. Uh, my, my, mother, my mother is biking by. Oh, one one second. Okay. Reporter Simon Adler. I'm, uh, I'm on the phone here. Oh, okay. And producer Annie McEwen. Uh, hey, Mommy. Annie says hi. Annie says hi. When we come back, We're going to get elemental, I guess you could say. We're going to look at one more invisible ally 
that we're just now understanding thanks to this pandemic. Anyhow, that's coming up after the break. Science Reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yay. Oh, Lord. Lordy, Um, lordy. Look who's 40. Haven't talked to you in like a year. I know, right? What's uh... on our agenda? It's, uh, it's funny. (laughs) <laughs> your hands over your face right yeah, now. You're my hands like, oh. are over my face. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. Uh, for this next story about a tiny invisible thing that might help us in the fight against COVID, we have producer Molly Webster. Okay, so this whole story is about an element. And I learned about it recently when I was reading an article from Smithsonian. And it was about this British scientist, this guy, Bill Keevil. Hi, Hello. Good morning hey, to you. how are you? I'm well, thank <laughs> Good. you. So Good called Bill Kiefel. Oh, uh, he's oh, yeah. at Southampton University in the UK. And for him, the story started, which is he's a microbiologist. You know, he studies small things. And a ways back in his career, sort of at the beginning of it. the late 80s. He had an experience that basically has come to define his career. Yeah, I worked for the Public Health Laboratory Service at Porton Down sort of the equivalent of Fort Detrick. A military lab where they study things like Ebola and smallpox. And while I was there, we started to get outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease. Every so often, a new killer disease appears that the immune system can't handle. That's how it is when some 2,000 war veterans come to Philadelphia 
for the 58th Annual Convention of the American Legion. Legionnaire's disease was discovered, like, at the end of the 70s. In the past few days, a virus-like mystery illness has killed 15 persons and hospitalized at least 42 others. Their symptoms? Much like a heavy cold. So you have coughing, fever, pneumonia, and then you can die. In all, 178 persons are stricken. 29 die. Eventually, scientists figure out it's like an airborne bacteria. Legionella bacteria. And it was traced to the cooling towers. The bacteria was growing in stagnant waters in the air conditioning systems. But Bill says even though they knew this, even by the late 80s, they hadn't figured out how to stop it. And so they were still having outbreaks. It hit a big hospital in the Midlands, and then it hit the BBC, of all places. Really? In, yeah, in, in, in London. So Essentially, people are trying to think, like, how can we keep Legionnaires from growing? In, uh, how can we keep this Legionnaires bacteria from growing in these cooling towers? That was the problem. Bill was working on some stuff that's like, it was like tangentially related to water and bacteria in water. And so in the middle of this research and discussion. We were approached by the copper industry. Somebody identified as the copper industry (laughs) reached reached out to Bill. Big copper. (laughs) Big copper. I literally... Sent him an email the other day that I was like, could you be more specific about the copper industry? Who is Big Copper? So the copper industry called Bill. Because at the time, they were looking for new markets for copper. And they said, hey, you. <laughs> the we copper will. industry. Um, no, they said, hey, Bill. Um, what if the tower or parts of the tower were made out of copper? Wait a second. So how is it that copper, I guess, what is motivating big copper to call Weevil to say, hey, listen, there's this Legionnaire situation. Okay. We think that copper. My guess is. Oh, Keevil. I keep calling him Weevil. Oh, that's I such know. an ass. I wasn't I'm such an sure ass. I'm sorry. You... <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. Um, I think that it's because there is a long history of copper killing bad things. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Roman civilizations, they found that drinking water out of copper-containing vessels inhibited bacterial growth far more so than, I don't know, say something like like a wooden cup, for example. This is chemist Joanna Buckley, and she pointed out it wasn't just the ancient Greeks. You know, the Egyptians used copper plumbing. In ancient China, they kept their water in copper. They, they weren't sure why, but it stayed fresher for longer. So copper was discovered 11,000 years ago. Whoa. Um, I know, which is a very long time ago. Weren't we just barely starting farms at that point? Yeah, this was like pre-Iron Age. For a long time, copper was the only metal that was known. So it was used for just about anything where using a metal uh, was required. Things like armor, weaponry, primitive machinery. I had never even thought about this, but the Bronze Age only happened because bronze is copper and tin. So the Bronze Age is in a sense a copper age that we then left. Really? Yes. And Bill says that for a long time... Copper, and particularly um, its alloy, brass, were the major materials used um, in buildings, for example, ships, what have you. You know, big copper was king. For hundreds of years. 
And then about 40, 50 years ago, there were all of these new materials that came out of the wars that replaced traditional copper. Stainless steel, aluminium, plastics. And people thought, oh, these look nice and they're easy to clean. So let's get rid of the copper and the alloys because we've got to keep cleaning those uh, because they tarnish. Um, and copper's expensive. So it's like suddenly coming out of the wars, you have the invention of a bunch of cheap materials. Hmm. And then people are like, well, why don't we use these cheap materials in all of our stuff? Wow. So big copper, when they called Kivel, they were like, Kivel, bring back the Bronze Age. <laughs> it feels like that it. That is the copper age. It feels age. <laughs> like they're like drawing at straws here. They're like, oh, we, we heard about something in Stafford. We heard about something in Stafford. Get on it. Can we get copper in there? That's kind of how I play this out in my head. But anyways, um, Big Copper called Bill and they said, you know, can copper help with this Legionnaire's problem? And so Bill does the experiments and it's like the Legionella bacteria just disappears. Really? Yeah. And after this, you know, very successful collaboration, Big Copper just kept calling Bill. A couple of years after Legionella's, Big Copper calls and says... There's been this big waterborne outbreak of uh, an E. coli in Walkerton in Canada. Bill takes a little bit of the E. coli, plops it on some copper, and the copper kills it. A few years later... They came back to me and said, look, we really want you to focus on MRSA. The resistant staph infections that pop up in hospitals. People sometimes call them superbugs. Put these superbugs onto a copper surface, it zapped in minutes. Um, Wait, what is zapping mean? Oh, sorry. Just like, what's killed, happening? Killed, destroyed, annihilated, you know? And as Bill explained it to me, in a sense, literally zapped it. Yeah, so um, copper has a free electron that runs around the outside of the atom. You know, so the way that an atom works is there's the nucleus, and then it has the rings of electrons that surround that core. I often think of it as like Neptune. Is it Neptune that has rings or Jupiter that has rings? Well, Saturn has rings. Okay, Saturn. So I often <laughs> think of it as like Saturn where there's your little core ball and then there's this this rings around it. And those rings are yeah. all electrons. And so, yeah. And so copper has kind of what you could call an extra electron. Yeah. And this electron can really move and... If it sees something nice, it transfers to that other. Oh, it'll leave the copper and it'll pop on yeah, over to the other yeah, thing. Yeah. And so when it gets near a bacteria, the electrons will travel away and bond in a very loose kind of hangout way with some of the mo of some of the atoms that make up the cell membrane of the bacteria. So like if there's carbon in the cell membrane of the bacteria, if there's oxygen in the cell membrane of the bacteria, the the copper will let one of its electrons kind of cozy up to it. Huh. And then that loose bond changes the like the properties of that cell wall. So you lose this nice, smooth membrane integrity. and Everything starts to break down. And what would, like, what would that look like exactly? So imagine a balloon. 
So when you push it, you know, it moves in, it moves out again. Uh, it's very flexible. But imagine part of that balloon suddenly went very stiff. And if you were to push on that, then it just breaks. Oh, and so it just is brittle and it just Yes, that, that's, the word, that's the word we're looking for. It's brittle. So it essentially calcifies a little bit of the balloon yeah. exterior that then pops it. Yes. And it starts to um, become porous. So we've got some beautiful pictures of bacteria with holes in them, and they're leaking their contents outside. You can say they're vomiting. Now, what happens next, which is really neat. Oh, there's more. Is, okay. Oh, yeah, there's a lot more. So when the copper gets inside the cell, it reacts with enzymes, just, you know, destroys them. And then finally, which is the best thing of all, I think, the copper destroys the DNA and the bacteria, the nucleic acid. People also think it might actually wedge itself into the DNA of the bacteria and prevent replication. So it actually just wow. embeds itself into the DNA. So his whole thing is like, we should be using copper everywhere, yeah, people. Sure. Yes. Make, let's just make the whole hospital out of copper. Thank you for holding. So we there is a hospital that I found in South Carolina. Lexington Medical Center in Lexington, South Carolina. That's outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah. In part managed by this guy. I'm Mike Greeley. I'm a hospital operations administrator. And they just built a new 10-story patient tower. And uh, we read an article five years ago now, maybe six years ago. All I remember is it said... Copper holds some answers to reducing infections. Basically, one of the things in the article was these DOD studies that looked at copper, not in a lab, but in hospitals. Like, what would happen if you put down copper surfaces or, you know, copper door handles or something? And one of the studies indicated that it reduced hospital-acquired infections by 58 percent. And so Mike was like, all right, let's just do this. You would never notice it, but the door paddles that you push to enter the door are copper. They put in like copper platings on the doors, so where you would push the doors open. And then if you have to go to the bathroom, that same door hardware. That's all copper. And then if you're a family member or a nurse and you want to wash your hands in the patient room, those faucet levers are copper. And there's something else in the bathroom that's copper. It's the toilet flush handle. There's the handle on the IV pole. Which is what the patients do touch when they walk themselves down the hall. All told, they made six different surfaces copper. Yeah. Mike says... Copper never sleeps. It's always fighting an infection. He believes that it will save lives. Wait, I have two questions for you. Yes. Um, question one. Given the fact that carbon likes to... Carbon? No, copper likes to just sort of throw around its electrons very loosely. Uh, does it hurt people at all? That, that's a really great, great question. That was my big question, too. It depends how much you have of it. So, for so, example, so copper is actually an element that the body uses at very, very low levels for so many of its um, metabolic processes. Where it gets toxic, because there is a way in which copper gets toxic, is if you ingest it. In water, for example, or in a pill that you swallow, for example. Then that if you ingest too much copper, you can hurt your liver and your kidneys and your intestine. Okay. Um, the, the thought is, though, is that if it's just on your skin, you have so, 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 so many skin cells, and your skin cells replenish and turn over so quickly, and there's so many of them that it can't hurt you. Okay. 
that's not, that's question number one. Go ahead. Question two. Okay. Question and question two is, what about COVID? Yeah. Okay. Go. Okay. So there was a study where they took COVID two and they put it on copper and they put it on cardboard and stainless steel and one other surface, and they saw that by within four hours. COVID-2 was totally gone from the copper surface, and it took up to 72 hours for it to leave the other surfaces. Wow. that That's okay. So All that's right. pretty cool. That was done at the National Institutes of Health and the CDC and a few other places here in the States. Yeah, that sounds... I like those numbers. Frankly, everybody does. This is why you're seeing... Copper ions... Infused copper stuff everywhere. Introducing copperware masks. You can get copper masks and copper gloves and copper pajamas. Look how sexy these are. You can put the copper into and the linen. Copper blankets and copper sheets. Put the copper zap in your nose. This nasal wand that can stick up your nose. It will zap and kill the microbes. <laughs> like copper's blowing up right now. Wow. Um, pajamas. I think that's where I would draw the line. I know. The the trick here is, and there's a couple of tricks, it's like copper mask. Is it super helpful to have a mask with these threads woven through it? Uh, The virus would have to sit on there for a long time. Like maybe if you're going to wear the mask all day and then like stick your fingers up your nose or something, (laughs) maybe then it's practical. Um, The other thing is copper is not cheap. So the price of a ton of copper today on July 17th is $6,385 per ton, okay? For a ton of copper. For a ton of copper. Wow. So then if you're not using copper, you might be using something like steel. Okay. So I'm doing price of a ton of steel. Oh, wait, hold on. Price, steel, 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 price of steel. Okay, so this says stainless steel. Let's just say stainless steel because I don't know anything else. There's like shreddable steel is 18 cents a pound. It's $360 for a ton Whoa. of steel. Whoa, that's quite uh, it's quite a big difference. Well, let me tell you this. So Mike's actually going to go do another 300 rooms in copper. Oh, yes. The rest of the original facility. And the price tag? $600,000 is what it's going to cost me to do 300 rooms and a few additional bathrooms and kitchens and things like that. To retrofit. Yeah. And that's a lot for most hospitals. They're not going to spend $600,000 on copper when they really need to replace the CT or they really need to replace the x-ray unit in the ED a new CT costs you 460000 A new MRI costs you a million. They're not going to spend $600,000 on 300 rooms. Most hospitals are struggling to survive. A third lose, a third break even, and a third are fortunate to make a small bottom line to reinvest. But Mike says if he can afford it, he's going to do it. So, yeah, I am not above grinding up some copper I, and I'm walking gonna, around I love that Brooklyn. idea. I'm going to get some copper dust and I'm going to dust my children every morning. (laughs) It's so, it's like, there's so many things here where you're like, how do I do this story without sounding like I'm also funded by the copper industry? (laughs) We are going, we are, this is exactly according to their plan. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, we didn't need to call you Molly (laughs) because we we heard you were on the case all on your own. (laughs) 
You know?、Uh, big copper. Give us a call. I know. That was producer Molly Webster. This episode was reported by Simon Adler and Molly Webster and produced by Annie McEwen and Pat Walters. Special thanks to Mike Schmidt and Joe Schwartz.、Uh, I'd like to say special thanks to Dr. Vadim Bachman and Adrian Gombart. I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Hi, this is Nakaya from Port Townsend in Washington State. Radio Lab is created by Jad Abumrad with Robert Krolwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Habti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Tobin Lowe, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliai, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandbach, Todd Davis, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic Drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.comslashwnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.comslashwnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.